Yeah, please stand with me as we read from God's Word. And if you uh, don't have your Bible, you can uh, grab a pew Bible in front of you, and that's going to be on page uh, 709. And we're going to be reading 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. And again, that'd be uh, page 709 in your pew Bible. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now, he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. Father God, we just come to you in Jesus' name. And we just thank you that we can abide in you and that you abide in us. And that, that, um, that, we, that the, the, your spirit enables us to keep your commandments. And that we can have assurance of our relationship with you and of our destination when we die. God, we just... Uh, Pray that you would help us to be mindful and, and, and uh, aware of opportunities to share that hope with people uh, as that we come into contact through our daily lives. They would also come to know you and, and come into a relationship with you. And God, we just want to see lives transformed and, and, the, and the Northland to see more and more people who know you and love you and serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're new with us this morning, we began this series for the book of 1 John way back on Memorial Day weekend, that Sunday. And this is our, our 11th week, our 11th Sunday message, whatever you want to call it. And so after 10 weeks now of going basically through John, 1 John chapter 1, uh, chapters 2, and here we are at the end of chapter 3, perhaps we ought to just start the lesson here. Uh, this morning by asking this question, are you sure? Do you have assurance? That is, do you have assurance of your salvation? Do you know for sure that you know Jesus and that you have eternal life? After all, that is the whole theme of the book of 1 John. This is why John wrote this letter to the churches. And now we are benefactors of that as well, as we read the scriptures here. John writes this book because he wants us, he wants you to have assurance of your salvation. And so the question becomes very important, do I have that kind of assurance? Do I know for sure that Jesus is my Savior and Lord and I have eternal life? Let me tell you, assurance is one of the greatest gifts in all the world. If you are a believer here this morning, and you do not have assurance, and you are going through life with doubts and wondering, man, Satan uses that. And he paralyzes uh, us with that. And that's why we're going to take time to even look at what all this means this morning. John, he doesn't want us to have false assurance, though. He writes this book so that we will have assurance, 
but he doesn't want us to have false assurance if we are not true believers in Jesus Christ. And so throughout this book, what John does, and hopefully you've seen it if you've been with us through these weeks, is John gives us these series of tests, if you will. These tests to ask ourselves, to help us discern, to help us to judge our own hearts in light of God's Word that John gives us here of whether or not we are true believers or whether we are a false believer. Because while John wants us to have true assurance he wants us to be sure he doesn't want to give out false assurance to those who are not true believers. Now, again, what I love about John the Apostle here is he's so real. I mean, he's so down to earth, and he's so real with us. And he writes in that fashion. He knows where we live. He understands our struggles. And one of those struggles that he knows about us is our doubting hearts. And so what do you do when you have doubts as a true believer in Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing is you watch out. Watch out for it. Because first and foremost, notice one of these things in your notes. In fact, if you're here, I invite you to pull the, the insert out of your bulletin or you can follow along on the screen behind me. But one of the primary weapons fired by Satan at believers is doubt. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And one of the ways Satan, Satan seeks to devour us is through doubt. So, is it any wonder that Satan will most often attack the certainty of our faith in the gospel, the certainty of our salvation, the assurance of our standing in Jesus Christ? Is it possible to be a genuine believer and yet have a doubting heart about your salvation? And the answer is yes. And John knows that. And so he deals with this issue here in this these verses. When we are burdened with a doubting heart, we begin asking, am I really a Christian? Have I really believed in Jesus Christ? When I die, will I really go to heaven? And all of these questions can be intensified, magnified by a doubting heart, or what John calls a, a heart that condemns us, a condemning heart. In fact, it's interesting, in his book, by grace alone, Sinclair Ferguson, he lists uh, several fiery darts that Satan fires at believers. And one of those fiery darts is this, that he writes, you really can't be saved because you keep sinning. In other words, what he means by that is, how can you truly belong to God when you keep on sinning against Him? Besides, a real Christian would never do what you just did. A real Christian would never think what the, you just thought. A real Christian would never say what you just said. And so you must not be a real Christian. Those are the doubts that Satan plays in our mind. And many of us know what it's like to have those kind of doubts. We know what it's like to have a condemning heart. We've been condemned by thoughts such as, man, how can I be a Christian? Look what I just said. Look at how I just behaved. Look at what is running through my mind. 
I'm at best a pathetically weak believer who has scarcely begun to live like Jesus. And these accusations, they usually come in the wake of a failure in our lives. Or even uh, in the wake of some discouraging situation in which we find ourselves. As one author writes, he says, failing in faith, failing in love, or failing in obedience often prompts us to wonder, am I really a Christian? And I'm sure there have been moments in everyone's heart right now who is here this morning who has wondered these thoughts. Your heart has condemned you. And those doubts have caused you to wonder, am I a true believer or not? Listen, this is Satan hard at work. He is trying to cast doubts in your heart, doubting God's love, doubting God's care, doubting God's forgiveness, and thus doubting our very own salvation. This kind of doubt is significant and it needs to be addressed. And that's exactly what John does here at the end of chapter 3. It's just almost after three chapters, John calls a timeout in the middle of his writing. He's like, time out, hold on. And he brings everyone together. He says, we need to regroup here for a minute. It's almost like a coach. Zach's a coach. He's a basketball coach. Coaches girls softball, girls basketball. And there are times in the middle of the game, you just you call time out because you've got to regroup. You've got to reassure your players, here's what we're doing. All right, you fell on the field or on the court. This, this happened. You made a mistake. Forget about it. There's still a game to play. Let's move on. And this is what we focus on. And that's kind of what John is doing here. He's calling time out. In the middle of the letter, he says, listen, we need to take a moment and we need to talk about our doubting hearts, which are ever ready to condemn us. And John recognizes that as true believers, we can still suffer from doubting hearts. And so what we see here in these six verses is a father's love again to his little children. In other words, notice in your notes on the screen, John wants to reassure our doubting hearts that we are God's children. He wants to reassure us. John began chapter 3 by declaring God's great love for us. He writes in verse 1, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. But John also knows that we sometimes doubt God's love in our lives. We sometimes doubt our standing before God as his beloved children. And he knows that our hearts are ever ready to condemn us. And so he writes in verse 19, And by this we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. Now that word assure, it's a wonderful, beautiful word that John uses. It actually means to convince, to set at rest. In other words, John wants to set your heart at rest that you are God's child through your faith in Jesus Christ. John wants to reassure your doubting heart. He wants us to have, in other words, blessed assurance when our hearts condemn us. And so let's unpack this, what John writes in these verses here for the next few minutes. Notice number one, when our hearts condemn us, rest on the basis of assurance. Rest on the basis of assurance when your heart condemns you. When John says, by this, in verse 19, he's actually taking us back. 
He's taking us back to the preceding section of verses, and even uh, in, in context, even verse 18, where he just got through challenging us to love one another. And not just love one another with lip service, but with our whole lives. And when John says, when we love each other like Christ has loved us, in other words, when we love the brethren, when we love one another here in our families, in our church family, and we do this in deed and in truth, he says this reassures our hearts, this that we are actually in the truth, that we are in the truth of Jesus Christ. We're in the truth of the gospel. Loving, other, loving one another, in other words, with self-sacrificing love, because that's how Christ loved us. When we demonstrate that kind of love towards one another, it gives us assurance, you know what, I really am a child of God. Because now I'm acting like Jesus Christ. And I'm acting like He's in me, and I'm in Him. It gives us confidence that God is our God, and I am His child. But let's be honest here. How many of us actually love like Jesus loved you? Pastor Chris just got through preaching on this last Sunday. All about the love that we're to have with one another. And so if we're honest, how many of us actually practice that kind of love on a consistent basis? Loving one another like Christ loved us, let's be honest, is not always easy. In fact, we know we should love one another, but in our hearts, we struggle with anger. We struggle with bitterness, with hatred, especially towards those who have just hurt us or they've wronged us. And now, God, you're asking me to love them like Christ has loved me? Yeah. But we struggle with that. When I think about all those times when I treated someone like Cain treated Abel, rather than loving them like Christ loves me, that's when I start to feel guilty. It's when I start to feel shameful, and my heart begins to condemn me. And so what John does here is he shifts gears in verse 19. It's almost as if he's anticipating our doubting, condemning hearts. Because he knows we can't practice this kind of love perfectly and we're going to fail at it. Who here hasn't thought to themselves, well, since I don't love like I ought to love, and since I'm guilty of indifference and even hatred, how can I be a Christian then? Our condemning hearts, notice this in your notes, doubt often flows from and focuses on self-condemnation. Again, the reality is, our hearts are ever ready to condemn us when we fail. Our conscience, in fact, that's word, our heart, is, it just equals conscience. John is using them uh, interchangeably here. Conscience and heart. And so our conscience reminds us that we are not perfect. Who here is, right? Who lives a perfect life? Who loves one another perfectly? No one does. And so John is saying here that your heart or your conscience knows something about you that condemns you. Boy, does it ever. We know more about ourselves than any other human being knows us. And that's a good thing, isn't it? Or is it? Listen, it's a good thing to feel bad when we sin. It's a good thing to feel, in other words, maybe I should say it this way, to feel convicted of our sins. 
That's the way God has designed our hearts, our conscience. We need that initial feeling of sorrow and conviction because that motivates us to repent of our sin and to seek God's forgiveness for our sin. And so John is not saying here, just ignore your conscience. Ignore your heart. No, no, no. Don't do that. Your conscience reacts, if, especially if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, it reacts when sin is present. Your conscience acts as God's warning light that something is wrong and it needs to be dealt with. And that's why the danger is, when we do ignore our conscience, the pricking of the Holy Spirit who is convicting of us sin, and we ignore that repeatedly over and over, what happens to our conscience? It gets hard, doesn't it? It gets callous. And then it becomes much easier to ignore it. And so John's not saying ignore it. No, no, no. He's saying listen to your conscience and deal with the sin that you're being convicted of. Yes, sin has twisted our conscience. And folks, that's why our conscience, our heart, needs to be readjusted with the truth of God's Word. And so we don't rely on our conscience only. We rely first and foremost on the truth of God's Word. So don't ignore your conscience, and yet our conscience can easily condemn us to the point that we question whether or not we are even a Christian. John is saying it's not good, in other words, once you have dealt with your sin, once you've gone back to 1 John 1, 9, you have sought forgiveness, you have confessed it, you have received God's forgiveness, once you've dealt with it biblically, then basically he's saying it's not good to allow your heart to continually to beat you up over your sins that God has already forgiven. And yet, let's be honest, that's where so many believers live sometimes. We need to overrule the guilt of sin we feel in our heart with the truth of God's forgiveness. Otherwise, we will always doubt our relationship with God the Father. And so John comes to us like a, heaven, like, like a father to his children here, and he says, despite your failures, listen, you can have assurance that you are God's child. And notice the basis of this assurance. First of all, this assurance is based on the knowledge of God's grace working in our hearts, working in our lives. When you're troubled by a doubting heart, don't focus on your failures, rather focus on God's grace working in your life as a believer. Let the truth of God's grace in your life be your evidence that you are of the truth and reassure your heart. We should point to the reality of what the Puritans called in-breaking love of God. The in-breaking love of God. You're like, what in the world does that mean? Well, when you can say, then you can say with the Puritans, and I quote, what my heart is saying is true. I have failed. I will continue to fail until I breathe my last and have been made perfect in the presence of God. I have failed and I have fallen, but I am persuaded that God has broken into my heart and that I have become a new creation in Christ. That is beautiful. That's what we all need to be reminded of. Our overall focus should be on God's grace working in us and through us, not on our failures. If I were to ask me five times you failed in the last week, you probably wouldn't have any problem coming up with your list. You could probably ramble it off right now. 
But if I were to say, name five times you've experienced God's grace and victory in the last six months, some of you, if not many of you, would have a hard time coming up with that list. And John is saying, look at God's grace in your life. Look at the times when you have, and in the context here, when you have loved one another, not in your own power or in your own flesh, because let's be honest, in our, my flesh, there are some believers I don't want to love. What they've said to me, what they've done to me, I don't want to love them. And yet, when I do love them, not in my power, but in God's grace working through me, John's saying, listen, look at those times. That's evidence that you are a child of God. And if you can't, Think of any such times of God's grace working in your life, then by all means, you may need to seriously examine whether or not you truly know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Whether or not you do have eternal life. Because John says in verse 19, and by this, and what is by this? It's by how we love one another. By loving one another in deed and in truth, we know that we are in the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. Second of all, this assurance is based on God's greater knowledge of us. If assurance as a Christian rested solely on my conviction of God's grace in me, I would fall prey to my own sins and doubts a whole lot, for even my sense of God's grace in my life ebbs and flows. The verdict that ultimately counts is not the one that I pass on me or even the verdict that somebody else passes on you, but the one that God passes on you. So John says in verse 20 here, for if our heart condemns us, God, he is greater than our heart and he knows all things. Yes, at times, John says, our hearts condemn us when we fail. But God is greater than our hearts. Sometimes I disobey. Right? Maybe I should say sometimes we disobey. I know I do. Sometimes I don't love like I should. How many want to join me on that one? I know I don't. In fact, sometimes, yes, even hate comes out of me. And it comes out of seemingly nowhere. And I'm like, whoa, where did that come from? And these things bother me. And that's bad, right? No, actually, it's good that it bothers me. Because such issues don't bother people who don't know Jesus, or who, are, who have hard hearts. But they should and they can trouble the Christian. So when your heart condemns you, look to God. Look to Jesus Christ and the gospel because God is greater than your heart and He knows all things. When your heart condemns you, like, look, you just failed. How can you believe a child of God? Listen, God's grace is what provides the CPR. When your heart sends you on a guilt trip, John reassures us that our God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our sins. He's greater than our failures. And when your heart is full of doubt, the place to turn is not inward. Rather, it's 
upward toward God who is rich in mercy and offers forgiveness each and every time we confess it. Moreover, recall the God who knows everything. Now that's both frightening, convicting, and comforting, all wrapped in one. But John uses it here to let it reassure us, to give us confidence, to reassure our doubting hearts. God is not blind to our failures and sins. Do you realize he knows every detail of every sin we've ever committed, ever have committed, will commit, I mean the whole shoot and caboodle. He knows that even the littlest sin carries the weight of eternal condemnation. But here's our God. He still forgives. He still forgives when we seek his forgiveness and we come with a repentant heart and confess it. Whoa, blow us away, right? So accept his forgiveness through Jesus Christ and be assured, according to Romans 8.1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus. So if you have sin, then by all means, deal with that sin. And we had a whole message on how to deal with the sin. We confess it, and we ask God's forgiveness, and we receive His forgiveness, and we let Him wipe away that guilt and take away that shame. But don't allow yourself to go on in guilt and condemnation. Listen, our ultimate assurance is that we belong to the One who is greater than our hearts, who is rich in mercy, who does not treat us as our sin deserves. We belong to the One whose blood cleanses us from every sin we commit. Assurance is based on the knowledge of God's grace working in your life in knowledge of God's greater knowledge of your heart. Listen, He saved you even though He knew every sin that you would ever commit. Let that blow you away. Just think, God's salvation exceeds your sinfulness. It's here our doubting hearts find blessed assurance. So when your heart condemns you, John is telling us here, he's exhorting us like a father to his children, rest in the basis of assurance. And when you do, you will have confidence toward God the Father. And you will enjoy the blessings of assurance, which brings us to point two. When our hearts are confident, enjoy those blessings of assurance. Now notice John's words of encouragement in verse 21. Look at it in your Bibles or in your notes here. Look at what he says. In fact, notice how he begins verse 21 with one of his favorite terms here for us as believers in Christ. He says, beloved, term of affection, term of love. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Literally, that means we have confidence in the face of God. We have confidence in the presence of God. In other words, we can come boldly through to the throne of God, according to Hebrews 4.16. You don't run from God because you're undeserving. You run to God because He has accepted you as His child. That's the idea, beloved. See, that word beloved has two connotations, like two sides of a coin. John uses it in the sense that he loves us like a father loves his children, but it's also a term of endearment that we are beloved by God the Father. God's children are beloved 
by the Heavenly Father. We are His sons and His daughters. We've already been accepted. But Satan will say, look at your sins. How can you be a child of God? You see, the attack of Satan here that brings doubt is that you don't deserve to come boldly to the throne of God. You don't deserve to call yourself a child of God. You don't deserve access to talk to God. But the counterattack is when God saved you, He already knew the worst about you. There's nothing you can hide from Him. He has already adopted you into His eternal family, and now you can approach Him with boldness as His child. And I'll never forget, it's like when I was, used to be a kid. As many of you know, my father used to be the pastor here, and now I sit basically in the same office that he did. And as a kid, when we moved here when I was five years old and growing up, man, I would just barge into his office anytime I wanted to. You know what? It was okay. Why? Because I was his son. He's my dad. And now, almost every Sunday morning, I mean since the time Jack was four years old, when he comes with his mother to church, he barges into my office. It doesn't matter what's going on. And I don't ever condemn him for it. Jack, how you doing? Why? Why is that, Jack? Because he's my son. He has access to his dad anytime he wants. And that's the idea here. So when we trust the judgment of our conscience to our God, listen, our confidence shifts now. It shifts from being based on what we feel, because let's be honest, as human flawed beings, when we sin, what do we feel? Guilty. Our heart condemns us. But John is telling us here, our confidence before God shifts from what we feel to what God says about us in His Word. This confidence towards God, it isn't some kind of bold bravado based on a perfect church attendance or perfect driver's driving record or a really good week where you didn't skip your devotions. Our confidence toward God, it isn't because you've had a great day or you've had a victorious week. No, no, no. Our confidence toward God is based on, listen to me, the atoning work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. It's based on an invitation from God the Father to approach Him as His beloved children anytime. In other words, what John is saying to us here, get this, because this is powerful. He's telling us, seeing then who I am in Jesus Christ, I have confidence and boldness toward God the Father. One author summarizes it this way. He writes, a Christian approaches the eternal God with the confidence not only of a forgiven sinner, but also of a restored son or daughter. Such boldness before God is not presumption. Rather, it is God's answer for our doubt. It is centered in Jesus and what He has done. John is saying, dear friends, be encouraged. We have confidence before God. We do not live in the twilight world of doubt and apprehension. We can come with confidence to the throne of God's grace because our Savior's obedience hides all our transgressions from view. You know what that means? God the Father now sees you as His son or His daughter. 
and you are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God doesn't see you as a sinner anymore. Does that mean we don't sin? No, sure we do. But we deal with it, and God forgives us, and He doesn't change the position that we have before God. This confidence toward God, it leads to two phenomenal blessings that John now identifies for us. It leads to the blessing of answered prayer and an abiding relationship with God because of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. Notice the first blessing. We confidently know then that God answers our prayers. John makes this staggering statement or claim in verse 22. Look what he says. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. And you're like, whoa, unbelievable. How can John say such a thing? Well, John was not coming up with some new doctrine of prayer here. In fact, he's really just reflecting the words of Jesus that Jesus spoke to him and his disciples in the upper room in John 14, 13, when Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then John goes on and he tells us the reason we receive whatever we ask in the rest of verse 22, where he says, because we keep his commandments, God's commandments, and we do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, let's be honest here, because at first glance, this looks like prayer is somewhat like a religious bargain that we're making with God. We do what he wants, and he gives us whatever we want. And if that's true, then our motive for living for Jesus becomes very self-serving, if not altogether greedy. And God then becomes this sort of cosmic genie in the sky who grants wishes to all the Christians who keep his rules and then withholds favors from those who don't. So what is John saying here? What does he mean? Well, if you compare Scripture with Scripture, and you compare this verse with other verses on prayer, you discover that in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, our dreams that we have, our desires we have, our prayer requests begin to take on a, quote, God shape. That is, they conform to the image of God's will and not our own. In other words, our praying becomes less about what we want in our lives and more about what God wants in our lives. Warren Wiersbe got it right when he said, whenever our delight is in the love of God, our desires will be in the will of God. And that's what John is saying here. In fact, if you turn the verse around, you get a better understanding in the English translation here of what John is saying so that it reads like this. If we desire to keep God's commandments and we do the things that please Him, whatever we ask will be given to us. So John's point is this, that as we live in obedience to God's Word and as our, we desire to please our Heavenly Father, our prayers then will be a reflection of God's will. And those prayers will be answered according to God's will. So no matter what we are praying, we should end every prayer by saying, not my will, but whose will? 
God's will. In fact, this provides the crucial context for what John writes later on in chapter 5, in verses 14 and 15, when he says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, God hears us, and if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. And so we pray this way because our Heavenly Father knows what's best for us as His children. We do not know what will happen to us today or in the future. What we think looks good to us today, oh man, it can stink tomorrow. But God knows. In fact, as little children, our vision is so limited. We are creatures of time, not of eternity. And so with childlike faith, we pray, we say to God, Father, here are the desires of my heart, but I know my heart can be deceitful. I know my heart does not always desire your will, but Lord, I'm praying to you and I'm asking that you grant only what pleases you and brings glory to your name. That's the idea here. And because we're like little children who have to be reminded of truth, John goes on and he summarizes now the essence of God's commandments here. This commandment is expressed in two parts in verse 23. Look at it. And John writes, and this is his commandment, God's commandment. And now he expresses it in two ways, two prongs, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And there it is again. Love one another as he gave us commandment. In other words, believing on Jesus Christ is the first and great commandment of the gospel. Have you believed? Have you come to that place in your heart where you have recognized that you are a sinner in need of the Savior? Jesus Christ. And without Jesus, there is no hope. Apart from Jesus, you are judged and damned to eternity in hell. And so John reminds us again what he reminded us in chapter 1, that Jesus is everything. And have you come to that place where you have said, there is nothing in me. I need you, Lord. I trust in you, in your salvation, in your work on the cross to cover my sins. That is the place to start. And then John says, second of all, love one another. Now it's interesting how John links these two. He links our faith in Jesus with loving one another. It's almost as if John is saying these two things go together and you cannot separate them. Now, understand me clearly here. John is not saying love one another so that you can become a Christian. But John is saying Love one another because you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And you want to live like Christ. And how did Christ live? 
He demonstrated love. And we are to do the same thing. John Piper adds, the one all-embracing commandment of this letter is that we believe in that we love. These are the foundations of our assurance because these are the evidence of God's work. They are the testimony of His Spirit, which brings us right into the second blessing here. We confidently know that God abides in us. How? By His Spirit. Knowing how fragile our hearts are, John reassures us with this blessing. How do you know you're a true believer in Jesus Christ? Look what John writes here in verse 24. He says, now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this, now that's the second time he's used that little phrase. John began this section with that phrase in verse 19, and now he bookends it in the last verse of 24 here. And so this section is bookend by, the, by this in verse 19, and he ends it by this. You, know, you think John's trying to tell us something here? He wants you to know something. He wants you to have assurance. And so he says, and by this we know that he, God, Jesus, abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. We know we are true believers because the Spirit abides in us. We have a God-given, Spirit-abiding heart confidence that we are God's children. In other words, the Holy Spirit is our assurance of salvation. God's Spirit indwells every believer at the moment of salvation. And it's by God's Spirit living in us that we know that God abides in us and we abide in Him. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. John is reassuring us that God's Spirit lives in us and His Spirit will reassure you that God is your Father and you are His child. In fact, I love what Paul writes in Romans 8, 15 and 16. He says, The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, we cry out, Daddy, Daddy. And the Spirit Himself, John, Paul goes on to write, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Let me ask you, do you have this kind of assurance? Do you have blessed assurance? Do you know for sure that God is your Father and you are His child? Listen, it's possible to be saved and yet have doubts. And in such instances, we would be wise to take John's threefold test here in this book. And they're at the bottom of your notes there. I encourage you to meditate on these questions. Answer them honestly before God. And understand that the first anchor of assurance is always faith in Jesus Christ. If your trust is in Christ, then you can know for sure that you are God's child. You can know for sure that you have eternal life in Jesus Christ. There's a story that says a man once asked the evangelist D.L. Moody. Many of you have no idea who D.L. Moody is. That's okay. He was an evangelist in the early 1900s. And he, this man came to evangelize to D.L. Moody, and he told him that he was worried because he didn't feel saved. Moody asked him, 
Was Noah safe in the ark? Well, absolutely he was safe, the man replied. What made Noah safe? His feeling or the ark? Well, the man acknowledged that it was the ark. And here's the point. If you're in Jesus Christ, it's not your feelings that save you from God's judgment. Rather, it's Jesus Christ who saves. And faith puts you on the ark of salvation. So make sure you're on board before it's too late. The problem is that John's identifying for us here is our doubting hearts. We struggle with a condemning heart due to an imperfect love for one another. But John reassures our doubting hearts. He tells us, you know what, listen, God's grace is greater than our sin, and God is greater than your heart. And He has given you His abiding Spirit. God wants you to be confident in His love. He wants you to know for sure that you are His child. In other words, He wants you to have blessed assurance. Do you have that this morning? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. And we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the writing here of John, the apostle, and how you inspired him to write this little book. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the love that he demonstrated for us with his death on the cross and his resurrection. And so, Lord, I ask that you would do a work that only you can do. You would convict us. You would challenge us. And, Lord, you would open our eyes to see how we need to respond at this moment. As the praise team sings, let me encourage you to do just that, to come to Jesus Christ and respond as the Holy Spirit leads you, as they sing just a chorus. And when they're done, we'll receive our offering and be dismissed.